Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road, where we're looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And if you like this podcast, I'd love it if you would go to your podcast app and rate us with five stars and tell your neighbors and your friends uh, about us. We would love to grow this family. And and these days, we're nearing the end of Mark's gospel, and today we're going to go to a special place called Gethsemane, uh, this place where Jesus prayed and Jesus cried, and a place where he was ultimately betrayed uh, on the last night of his earthly life. Some have written that Gethsemane is the saddest place on earth. But before we get there, I need to tell you about something exciting in the world of biblical archaeology as it regards to Gethsemane. Uh, During the lockdown months of 2020, archaeologists have had some time to dig around and think, find things because they didn't have any pilgrims or any other business. So the last two years have been really exciting in that field. And in 2020, archaeologists discovered ritual baths near the traditional site of the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, a ritual bath or a mikvah, uh, these are all over Israel. They're all over Jerusalem. But these mikvah confirm the location of Gethsemane. Uh, The word Gethsemane means oil press. And in the past, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane has been a, quote, traditional site, much like many traditional sites in the Holy Land for pilgrims to worship and to visit places that have been made holy by generations of people saying their prayers, but but no way to know for sure if you're exactly there. So traditional sites oftentimes are a little like pitching horseshoes. You know you're close. It tries to evoke a memory, but could you know for sure? Well, these baths were would be necessary to cleanse the workers producing oil for temple service. They had to be clean in order to produce and so Gethsemane had long been considered a traditional site, and now these mikvah uh, and an ancient late Roman church also found there confirm that these are the trees on the side of the Mount of Olives. Now, speaking of the trees, if you go sometime to the Garden of Gethsemane, and I would love to take you, it always takes my breath away because these are very, very, very old olive trees. I think when I first went to the Garden of Gethsemane, I expected sort of a recreated garden, something that would have looked that way on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Instead, there are ancient trees, some of them a thousand years or more, uh, that that have also been prayed over and cried over. And it's some of these trees, uh, botanists have suggested that some of these trees have root systems that are 2,000 years old or older, which means that these trees are organic living things touched by Jesus, and these trees have a memory. It is quite moving to be there, and it is truly, truly, truly sad. So what do these trees remember? Well, let's read the text as Mark remembers it, which is Mark 14, beginning with the 32nd verse. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. 
he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and take your, take, taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, right away we see that Jesus is distressed. It is a specific word in the original language of the New Testament that means a deep-seated anxiety. Luke's gospel, Luke perhaps being a physician, would notice this, remembers that Jesus would sweat like drops of blood. Uh, And verse 34 that I just read to you says so much that his pain is so great he's dying or he feels like dying inside. So what do you do when you feel like you're dying? He prays, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is what Jesus says in every prayer except for his dying words, which I believe stresses the heart of, of faith, not only for Jesus, but for all of us. It is intimacy and our covenant relationship with God. To, God, to call God Abba, Father is to recognize, to recognize that the God of the universe, the same God who made the cosmos, knows my name. Better yet, the same God who made all the grass in the field and the sand on the beach knows the numbers of hairs on my head and knows the dreams I had last night. We are in relationship with the God who made us and everything around us, and so we call Abba Father. Still, we're told, he falls to the ground, which is different than the expected prayer posture of the world of Jesus. If we lived in their world, we would know exactly what this means because Jesus would normally pray standing with his arms outstretched. But here, he is in pain. And then here's the saddest part of all. He's alone because they sleep on him. Three times they sleep on him. Now, numbers are important in the Bible. I want you to remember that, that, that gospel stories are not merely newspaper reportings of an event. They are an artful retelling. And Mark's gospel is my favorite gospel because it's written like a well-crafted short story. Not a word or a detail is wasted. He checks on them three times, which I believe includes them all into the drama of failure. The word, the number three, rather, is a complete uh, number. Peter denies his best friend three times to suggest the completeness, if you will, of his own of his own failure. But the other disciples are as well. We're not left uh, being able to hang anything on Judas or hang anything on Peter alone. Rather, all of them will fail Jesus, which is to say that all of us uh, could fail uh, Jesus. Right? This is they are all included. In, in Peter's denial three times, and as a contrast to Jesus' own three temptations and his success over the devil. We just simply can't do it. I think a clue to meaning here, too, is in verse 36, where he says, remove this cup from me. Now, this word cup can allude to several things. First of all, if the Last Supper is a Passover meal, which we believe that it is, they had several cups of wine four cups to be precise, plus a walk. And I've done it from the site uh, or the neighborhood of the upper room down the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane is exhausting. So four cups of wine and a long, long, long hike and a climb back up a mountain in and out of a valley. They were tired. 
They were just tired. They're human. He even said as much to Peter, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's all out. However, there's another, there's another illusion, I think, to cup. And this is when he says, let this cup pass from me. Remove this cup from me. At the Passover meal, they drank four cups of wine, but there was always a fifth cup, and it was unconsumed uh, because they were waiting for the cup of redemption. They were waiting for Elijah to drink that cup when everything would be finished and everything would be complete. So this cup suggests that something is about to happen for us, which is the salvation of humanity. And yet there's still more. When we read the Bible, we read these old stories. My hope is, is that we learn to read them like Bible people, which is to say that that Judaism is interesting and history is interesting and the Roman world is interesting. Uh, the Bronze Age is interesting, uh, but we don't study these things simply to study history. We study these things trusting, like the people who wrote the Bible, that if God did something once, God will do it for me. If God did something for Abraham, God will do it uh, for Isaac. If God did something for Isaac, God will do it for Jacob and so on and so on until God will do it for Jesus and God will do it for me. If God did something in history, then God will do it again. Well, something happened here 2,000 years before, here in the Garden of Gethsemane or near there. But the Garden of Gethsemane, if you, if you travel there today, looks directly across the Kidron Valley at the Temple Mount. And the, the, the optical illusion, because the valley is so steep and not very wide, is almost looks like, looks like the Temple Mount is right on top of you. So something happened here 2,000 years before in this place that's identified in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 3, verse 1. In that part of the library that we call the Bible, we're told that Solomon built the temple, which would later become the Temple Mount, on Mount Moriah. Now, something very, very important happened on Mount Moriah, and it's found in Genesis chapter 22. Now, before I read this text to you, I want you to know that rivers of ink have been spilled on this story. This is the story of the binding of Isaac by Abraham, the intended sacrifice in, it, by command from God uh, of his only son. And Christians, it's common for Christians to read this story backwards, right? Through the lens of Jesus and God and and Jesus' own, or God's own sacrifice for humanity through his son, uh, Jesus, the, the words we say in our communion words uh, every Sunday, and it is absolutely faithful to, to take a Christian reading of Genesis 22. But I think we can locate in this text something in its own time and read something better. Let's remember, Abraham didn't know about Jesus. And so, and so for Christians, it might be a little, a little unfair to take this text and to remove it uh, from its own original context when something may well be here for us and for Jesus in the garden as he prays to Abba, Father. Hey, I'll give it a whirl. First of all, in Exodus 20, we're told, you shall have no other gods but me. Okay, this is our starting point. You shall have no other gods but Abba, Father. We moderns tend to assume this is because God is a jealous God or the other gods aren't real, or you can't get to heaven while you're worshiping a false god, and that's all fair, but a more practical application is simply this. If in their world, say the Bronze Age, if you were to choose a foreign god, you run the danger of adopting that god's ethics. You see, the Bible has one question in it 
from page one to about a thousand and one. And the question again and again and again is, will you be different in the way that I ask you to be different? Will you be different or are you going to be like everybody else? <laughs> will you stay awake with me? You're going to fall asleep. I mean, you know, it, 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 will you be different in the way that God asks you to be different? And so the problem with adopting a foreign God is that you fail to adopt that God's ethics, the way that that God sees people or, or, or deals with people. In other words, people become disposable or faith becomes an incantation or transaction. And they had their own story in, in their own history. In this library we call the Bible, we learned that about 900 years before Jesus' birth in a place called Bethel, which means house of God, an important place in the Bible. It's mentioned several times. I mean, Abraham pitched a tent there and, and Jacob had a dream there of a, of a ladder ascending and descending into heaven. Uh, so, so things happened. Well, about 900 years before Jesus' birth, a king named Jeroboam, who had a kingdom in the north, by this time, God's people had split into uh, into two kingdoms, a kingdom in the north called Israel with 10 tribes, a kingdom in the south called Judah, uh, much smaller, but with the capital city of Jerusalem and the temple so that it had more stability and it especially had more religious stability. Israel was always more wealthy and it had better relations with its foreign neighbors, but it also took on its foreign neighbors' ethic, if you will, in that dangerous way of flirting with, with, with foreign gods. And so Jeroboam had a great idea. He didn't want his people traveling to Judah to worship in the temple in Jerusalem because it was now a foreign country. So he built a worship site at Bethel and also one in Dan, far in the north. And here at Bethel, uh, he built basically a one-stop shop. I mean, I like to call it the religious version of a Bucky's. You could get everything there, right? You could worship Yahweh there, but you also had the golden calf. Hey, what are you into? You're able to do it. And as a result, they had something that was very successful. It was very lucrative, but not with the ethic. It was not different in the way that God asked them to be different. It just looked like the world around them. So they had a successful operation, but people were starving at the gate. And so one day, a prophet named Amos from Judah, from the south, uneducated, uncultured, but speaking God's word and on command from the Lord, steps into this elaborate worship center and he says this, and you can find it in Amos chapter five, uh, verse 21. I hate, I despise your festivals. It's pretty strong words from God. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I'll not accept them. And the offerings of your well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. And that, that word noise is a specific Hebrew word, which means fingernails on a chalkboard. It's a screeching noise. So your songs are noise to me. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God's priority is justice and its rightness and its trust and its humility. And it's not found on the other gods. It's not found on the other side. Which brings us back to Genesis chapter 22. We run into danger when we try to make Abraham think like a modern person. People living in the Bronze Age were just different. They lived in a different context and they lived in a different world. And one way that their world was different is that these foreign gods would often demand the sacrifice of their children. It was a context that they understood. There's a dark chapter in the history of Judah where one of their kings 
also sacrificed Jerusalem's children uh, to one of these gods. So this was a world that they lived in. And we can only imagine God saying, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham thinking, well, the jig is up. This God is no different than every other God around me. I will, I, I will trust and I will follow. Uh, but, but honestly, they're all, they're all the same. They take and they take and they take and they take. And so, uh, begrudgingly, perhaps, we'll never know because the text is so elusive, uh, but he obeys. He obeys the God that led him far away from his city, and he takes his son, and he binds him, and he's about to sacrifice him, just like the other gods uh, would command, and then suddenly an angel stays his hand. There's a ram in the thicket, and God is able to say to Abraham now, clearly, concisely, and permanently, forever, I'm your Abba Father. He's able to say for generations afterwards, I'm not that kind of God. I'm not that kind of God. I'm not that kind of God. I'll never be that kind of God. Don't believe anyone who says I'm that way. Uh, don't ever be led astray by anyone who might say I'm that way. I'm not that kind of God. I love you. I love you. I love you. You can trust me. We do something really poignant in our church, and many churches do this after the Maundy Thursday uh, worship where we, we remember the Jesus washing his disciples' feet at the Last Supper, and then we also strip the altar to prepare it for Good Friday. The church is dark and it's bare. We have a vigil through the night, which is basically our Garden of Gethsemane, and we give we give uh, people in shifts an opportunity to keep watch through the night and just undo what the disciples that failed to do on that night, as we fail to do again and again and again because the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. But on this one night, we... We try to get it right. Uh, we stay awake with him and we watch because we keep watch rather because, well, God is our Abba Father and has saved us again and again. If God did something once, God will do it again and we can trust. And we see here in the garden that Jesus, as much as it hurts, Jesus will trust. We'll continue to see in the next few hours that Jesus must trust. That's the story of Gethsemane. Now let's keep it going. Thanks, everybody.